This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. This episode was recommended to us by Simon, and so this is about serial killer Stephen Wright, also known as a Suffolk Strangler. So, Caitlin, have you heard of this one before? Yes. Yes, I have. But I don't think I know loads of information about it, so I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. (laughs) I'd say it's one of those ones that probably everybody knows, but not to the depths of, like, every single bit, you know. Uh, So I'll begin. Stephen Gerald James Wright was born in the Norfolk village of Erpingham in April 1958. He was the second of four children, an older brother David and two younger sisters Jeanette and Tina. His dad Conrad was a military policeman and his mum Patricia was a veterinary nurse. While his dad was on military service the family had lived in both Malta and Singapore. Also a small caveat this is based in England apologies for everything that I'm about to mispronounce throughout this whole episode but Caitlin and I do that all the time. So when Stephen was around eight years old, his mum left and his parents got divorced in the 1960s and they both later remarried. Stephen and his siblings lived with their dad, who fathered a son, Keith, and daughter, Natalie, with his second wife, Valerie. Stephen left school in 1974 and soon afterwards joined the Merchant Navy, becoming a chef on ferries sailing from Felixstowe, Suffolk. In 1978, in Milford Haven, he married Angela O'Donovan. They had a son, Michael. The couple separated in 1987 and they later divorced. Stephen became a steward on the QE2, a lorry driver, a barman and a forklift truck driver. Not all at the same time, might I add, this is just throughout his life. Now his second marriage was to 32-year-old Diane Cassell at Baintree Register Office in August 1987. They split in July 1988 while he was a pub landlord in Norwich. He was in a, in a relationship with Asada Whitley from 1989 to 1993 and they had a daughter together born in 1992. It was during this time that he also managed a public house in South London. So this post though was lost due to his gambling and heavy drinking and he was actually convicted in 2001 of a theft, stealing £80 to pay off his debts. This was his only criminal conviction so far. But this also means his DNA and data and everything like that is now in the database. Now, it's also known that throughout these times, Stephen built up large debts, largely through gambling, and he had recently been declared bankrupt. It's also said that Stephen twice tried to commit suicide, first by carbon monoxide poisoning in his car in the mid-1990s, and secondly in 2000 by an overdose of pills. Now, this is his life. It's not, you know, we know from the intro that this is a serial killer, but really, 
he's not got all the usual things that you would see in a serial killer growing up. Yes, he's not able to keep a marriage or a job very long, but there's no other telltale signs. So let's jump to the 2nd of December 2006, where the body of a young woman was discovered in the water of Belstead Brook at Thorpe's Hill near Hintlesham by a member of the public. She was later identified as 25-year-old Gemma Adams. Gemma was born in Kesgrave and living in Ipswich, and she disappeared on the 15th of November at about 1.15am. She was found naked in a brook, but had not been sexually assaulted. As a child, Adams had been a popular girl among friends and her affluent family. But as a teenager, she started smoking cannabis and eventually started taking harder drugs, becoming addicted to heroin. She had been working as a sex worker to cover the costs of her drug addiction, which had already led her to being dismissed from her job with an insurance firm. Six days later, on the 8th of December, the body of 19-year-old Tanya Nicol, a friend of Adam's who had been missing since the 30th of October, was discovered in water at Copdock Mill just outside Ipswich. There was also no evidence of sexual assault. Tanya was from Ipswich. She disappeared and was reported missing on the 1st of November. And she was the first of the victims to be reported missing, but the second body to be found. She had also been working as a sex worker to help fund her drug addiction. Now, two days later after that, on the 10th of December, a third victim was found by a member of the public, again in an area of Woodland by the A14 Road, and later identified as 24-year-old Anneli Alderton. Anneli, sorry. According to a police statement, she had been asphyxiated and was around three months pregnant when she died. She was a mother of one and had been living at a temporary address in Colchester in Essex. Alderton disappeared on the 3rd of December and was last seen at 5.53pm on the train from Harwich to Manningtree. And she got off the train at Manningtree at 6.15 before going on to Ipswich via another train, which she arrived at 6.43pm. One of the biggest differences of the discovery of um, Annalise's body compared to the other two was that her naked body was found posed in the cruciform position. So, you know, think Jesus, legs crossed, arms out. Now, it could bring suspicion of this is now a religious sign, something's going on, it's pointing to something bigger. However, nothing really came of that and it may have just been a random change up that the murderer was doing and it it wasn't religious at all, so no one knows why he did that. She had also been addicted to drugs since shortly after her father's death from lung cancer in 1998, and Annalie was also a sex worker. Now, on the 12th of December, Suffolk Police announced that the bodies of two more women had been found. On the 14th of December, the police confirmed one of the bodies as 24-year-old Paula Clonell. Potla had disappeared on the 10th of December and was last seen in Ipswich at approximately 12.20am. According to Suffolk Police, Paula died from compression of the throat. Paula was a mother of three children and she was born in Northumberland and she was living in Ipswich. Her body was found near Levington and it was naked but again not sexually assaulted and a post-mortem reported that she had been killed um, the same as the others, like the compression of the throat. 
Now, prior to her death, she commented on the then recent murders in an interview with Anglia News, stating that despite them making her a bit wary about getting into cars, she continued to work because she needed the money. Clonell had three children and they'd been taken into care due to her drug addiction and she herself had spent some time in her of her childhood in a referral unit and it was shortly after being placed there that she started taking drugs which led down to the habit of everything that she didn't like and again she was a sex worker. Now on the 15th of December the police confirmed that the other body was that of 29 year old Annette Nichols who disappeared on the 5th of December at 9.50pm. The bodies of Clonell and Nichols were found in Nacton, which is Levington, which I mentioned in a minute ago, which is close to where Alderton was found. Again, a member of the public had seen one of the bodies six metres from the main road and the police discovered the second body by helicopter whilst conducting initial investigations. Annette was a mother of one from Ipswich. Again, when Nichols' body was found, she was naked but not sexually assaulted. Her body was also one of those posed in the cruciform position. But like I said earlier, there's no religious kind of background to this. Nobody knows why. Nichols was the oldest victim and she'd been a drug addict since the early 2000s when she was completing... Can I just put in with something? Sorry. Mm-hmm. See, when you said regarding the position, I just wanted to note that like, I think something that's very, like, not clever, but something really interesting about serial killers is they can do whatever they want and change things up. And there's so many questions, whereas it can generally not have an answer. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like they can literally put them in one position once or twice and everyone's now like so fixated on like is it religious is it not and they generally could have done it with no reason. Yeah and they're just like oh watching from behind being like these are all these questions are getting asked and they're reveling in it but they're like I literally did it because I wanted to. There's no deep reason Um, just like you said. But I believe it was just those two that were in that position <clears throat> and again sorry <clears throat> Uh, she was also a sex worker just to fund her addiction so all five women they worked as sex workers in the Ipswich area now let's just get one thing clear that does not mean that they deserve to be murdered at all but there is that is a thing that has happened here now Suffolk police linked the killings and they launched a murder investigation and they codenamed it Operation Sumac on the 10th of December police crump sorry I am illiterate today, but at a 10th of December press conference, detectives from the Suffolk Constabulary issued a warning to all women in Ipswich not to work on the streets and said that they had received offers of assistance from neighbouring police forces, particularly Norfolk, in their hunt for the killer or killers because they don't know it's just one person. Now, Chief Constable Alistair McWitter acknowledged that Suffolk Constabulary... Wow constabulary would be reliant on external assistance due to the magnitude of the investigation. Now senior investigator with the Metropolitan Police Commander Dave Johnston was reported to have been drafted into the murder inquiry team from Scotland Yard in London and he was there on an advisory capacity. But the day-to-day investigation was conducted by Detective Chief Superintendent Stuart Gull. Now, during the 13th and 14th of December press conferences, Detective Chief Chief Superintendent Gull revealed that police believed the locations where the five bodies were found to have been deposition sites, not murder scenes, indicating that the victims were all killed elsewhere and transported to the locations where they were later found. However, 
DCS Gull was unable to indicate where the women had been murdered or whether the crimes took place at a single location or at multiple sites. DCS Gull also revealed that some items of women's clothing and accessories, including a handbag and jacket, had been recovered and were being forensically tested to establish whether they belonged to any of the murdered women. During the course of the press briefings, DCS Gull stated that over 200 police officers were involved in the investigation and some 400 to 450 calls were being received daily by detectives. On the 15th of December, Suffolk Constabulary's website revealed that a total of 7,300 telephone calls had been made to police regarding the investigation and that over 250 police staff were working on the cases with support from at least 26 other police forces. As of 18th of December, the number of officers involved in the investigation had increased to 500 and a further 350 officers from 30 other police forces had assisted in the inquiry, which had involved detectives trawling through 10,000 hours of CCTV footage. The number of calls received regarding the case had also increased to around 10,000. Now, on the 18th of December, Suffolk Constabulary reported that they had arrested a 37-year-old man on suspicion of murdering all five women. The man was arrested at 7.20am at a house in Trimley Street, no, Trimley St Martin near Felixstowe, which was in Suffolk. The detention of the suspect was extended by magistrates by a further period of 24 hours to the maximum of 96 hours allowed under English law, which I didn't know they could do that. I always thought, oh, you can only keep me for 24 hours and then I'm out. Don't know if you knew that, Caitlin. But anyway, it was extended. I think in Scotland you can only keep for 24 hours. Right. I think that's an English law. Okay, that I makes mean, sense. I could be wrong, but after many an episode of 24 hours in police custody, I'm sure <laughs> you can't keep someone in Scotland. But I'm sure it's different in England, I think. I'd probably have to do some research into it, but I'm sure there's another reason. Yeah, no, no, that completely makes sense to me because Scottish and English law, are they just contradict each other all the time. They're like, well, I'm going to do this and you can do that. But anyway, back to the, back to the story. Now, on the 19th of December at 5am, police arrested a second suspect, 48-year-old Stephen Wright. And he was arrested at a residence in Ipswich. Now, on the 20th December, police were granted a 36-hour extension to question the second suspect. On the 21st of December, a joint statement was issued by DCS Gull and Michael Crimp, Senior Prosecutor for the Crown Prosecution Service in Suffolk, announced that the second suspect, named as Stephen Wright, had been charged with the murder of all five women. Police said that the first suspect, who was not officially named, was released on police bail. Bail was cancelled on the 6th of June for the first suspect because no more inquiries involving the case were to be undertaken involving this person. Now, I did read as well that I think the BBC announced his name in the press and the media, which was an uproar and should never have happened because this guy was not guilty and he got let off by the police. So his name should never have been mentioned. So I won't mention it again. Now, Wright appeared before magistrates in Ipswich on the 22nd of December 2006 and was remanded in custody. On the 2nd of January 2007, he appeared before Ipswich Crown Court and was remanded in custody to be appear before a court on the 1st of May. So on the 1st of May, formerly um, Stephen Wright 
entered a plea of not guilty. The judge indicated the trial would be heard at Ipswich County Court in January 2008. On the 14th of January 2008, Stephen Wright appeared at Ipswich County Court ahead of his trial, which began on the 16th of January with the prosecution opening their case. This was the first time specific details were released to the public. These included the bodies of two of the victims, Annalie and Annette, being deliberately posed in the cruciform position. DNA evidence linking Stephen Wright to three of the victims and fibre evidence also connecting him to the victims. Now, let's go back all the way to 2001 when he was at petty theft he was um, arrested for. If he wasn't, if he didn't commit that crime back then, his information would never have been on this database. But thankfully, it was. Now, the defence argued that Wright was a frequenter of prostitutes and he had full sex with all of the victims, barring Tanya Nichols, whom he picked up with the intention of sexual relations, but apparently he changed his mind and dropped her back off in the red light district of Ipswich. This contradicts his earlier statement when he was stopped by the police in the district in the early hours of the morning when he said that he did not know he was in the red light district and that he was driving around because he could not sleep. However, Stephen Wright's rented flat, it was located right in the red light district area. Now, on the 21st of January, jurors were taken to sites involved in the case. These included Stephen's rented house, which they viewed only from the outside and also all the areas where the victims were found. During the trial, the prosecutor, Peter Wright QC, suggested that Steve Wright may not have acted alone, as the remains of Annalie were found some distance from the road, but there was no evidence that her body had been dragged by one person. The jury in the trial was a second group chosen for the task because a member of the original jury, which consisted of 10 men and two women, had a health issue, so they had to change it up. The sentencing jury consisted then of nine men and three women. All potential jurors had to complete a questionnaire which asked if the candidates knew any of the victims, witnesses or the sus suspect, which is the usual sort of thing that you would do as a jury. Now, the defence lawyer, Timothy Langdale, QC, which I'm sure we've mentioned before in a couple of our other cases, he noted that the jurors had a particularly difficult task given the media coverage of the events. Because, you know, you've got a serial killer here, five murdered women, media are going to be having a field day. So the judge ordered them to decide the case based only on evidence presented in court, which I feel must be quite hard for a jury to do. I've never been on jury duty, sadly, but I mean, if you know all this information that you've seen in the media when you're back at home, you can't allow that to rule your judgment. So you kind of have to just pretend you haven't heard it. Like, I don't know how they do it. I know they have to, and I know you would, but yeah. Now, on the 21st of February 2008, after eight hours... I butt in again. Sorry, it took me a minute to... <laughs> to play, <laughs> myself. To listen. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was tuning out. Um, I actually listened to a podcast recently, um, and it was set in America, so it wasn't anything to do with the UK. And it was a very infamous case, and um, the jury was... They kind of did it out of the state it was in, but that didn't really help. So they basically asked the full jury if they thought he was guilty or not prior to the trial and anyone that said yes kept getting booted off until they eventually had enough people that were like undecided because they went through so many people because so many people knew the case in the media and had already made up their mind 
which you would do because wow. the case like you follow these cases yeah so it took quite while um quite a while and then because it was a death penalty case as well they then asked the jurors if they believed in the death penalty and if any of the jurors said they didn't they were also booted off the jury because they were going for the death penalty wow that is interesting who was it um lacy oh, that's kind of so annoying me hold on i'll rem- give me a second lacy peterson that's what I want to say. Yeah, Lacey oh. Peterson. So that's a really good case. It's American, um, but it's one of those of like the husband did it and everyone believes the husband did it and the husband was tried for it. But did the husband do it? But it's not a lot of evidence. We'll have to go find out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really, I can link it. It's a really, really good podcast. But I mean, I would cover it, but that's America. We're not going too far. But it's yeah. very, very good. Very good story. Perfect. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree with you because it must be really hard. Uh, to do that so that was quite a good idea for America to do but their jury system as well I don't know if you've seen shows are crazy they have about a week choosing the jury but anyway we digress we digress now on the 21st of February 2008 after eight hours of deliberation the jury returned a unanimous guilty verdict against Stephen Wright on all five counts of murder so sentencing took place at 10 30 a.m on the 22nd of February he was found guilty of murder and the prosecution QC demanded that life should mean life for right and he should never be released from prison. So because of that, he was sentenced to life imprisonment and Mr Justice Gross said that life should mean life on the basis that the murders resulted from a substantial degree of premeditation and planning. After the verdict was passed, relatives of the victims thanked the police for their efforts to solve the crime and some family members also expressed their feelings that life imprisonment was not enough and that Wright should face the death penalty. So Craig Bradshaw, whose daughter was murdered, he stated that today, as this case has come to an end, we would like to say justice has been done, but we're afraid that where five young lives have been cruelly ended, the person responsible will be kept warm nourished and protected in no way has justice been done these crimes deserve the ultimate punishment and that can only mean one thing where a daughter and the other victims were given no human rights by the monster his will be guarded by the establishment at great cost to the taxpayers of this country and emotionally to the bereaved families which that statement says a lot. It could open up a lot of debate as well, you know, for things that obviously we, we don't need to go into them at this um, on this episode. But he kind of has a point at the same time. Now, however, though, other family members, they they did seem satisfied with the verdict. And the father of Gemma Adams, he said that I am very relieved and pleased for all of the families that this is now over and we can now start to get on with our lives. Because I guess, obviously, it must be very hard because this is almost three years of their lives, of this whole case going on. And they've lost their daughters in the process and they have to go through this with the media and the public and everything else. Now, yeah, absolutely. I get what the guy's saying that, like, justice isn't served or, you know, like, he's getting... But, like, we don't... We're not a death penalty country. So, like, there isn't really anything else we could do and actually life being life that's very rare to get as well so that is a pretty good sentence yeah no absolutely especially nowadays as we know life means 10 years with good behavior so yeah now prime minister at the time gordon brown he obviously he praised the professionalism of the police and all that jazz but they also 
said that it was a great example of what he believed to be the importance of the national DNA database, which, again, that database does not get enough credit because if Stephen Wright's information wasn't on there, there is a chance he could never have been found. So, again, now, Stephen's motivations for the murders, they've never been revealed. He has always, and to this day, pleads not guilty. He doesn't share any information. And in the interviews carried out after he was charged, he just answered no comment to every single question he was asked. So it was announced on the 19th of March 2008 that Wright would be appealing against his convictions. Um, However, on the 2nd of February 2009, it was quickly announced that he decided to drop this appeal like right away. So nothing came of that. And the serial killer, he remains in Lulmart in prison to this day. So, Caitlin, do you have anything to say about that, the, the murders of the five women? Um, I think just what you were saying there about the fact he's always played, like, no, well, said no comment, and the fact he's still pleading not guilty, the amount of power he obviously still has mm-hmm. is crazy. Like, it's like... Um, the Moore's murders, like Ian Brady just not releasing where like the final body was. Like he obviously has so much power because there are so many questions. And like if we've got questions, how do you think the family feel that like their child, their like sibling was killed and they don't have a reason why? Like I think that's awful, but it's the last bit of power he has really, isn't it? 